world. Do your eyes ever deceive you? On Monday evening, uh, my family and I, we went and had a picnic dinner at Lee Point, in part because I wanted to test out a phenomenon that has baffled the human species for thousands of years. I kid you not, thousands of years. I'm sure you've actually experienced it. It is the phenomenon that on a full moon, as it rises and is still near the horizon, it looks large, much larger than it does when it's high in the night sky. Now, the problem is, uh, when you see that, what you are actually seeing is not what is really there. Uh, it is known as the moon illusion. And interestingly, uh, we still don't actually have an answer as to why it happens. There have been several theories postulated, some ideas and, and some things that would kind of make sense of it, but nothing that kind of definitively is able to fully explain why this happens. And so believe it or not, when, when what you are seeing on the horizon, when the moon is rising, when it's a full moon, and, and it looks bigger than when it is at the night sky, believe it or not, that is actually an illusion going on inside your head. If you don't believe me, which I'm sure you probably don't, because I certainly didn't when I first discovered this, there are two ways that you can prove it, and I've tested both of them. And they have found that this is actually a valid issue. The first is if you measure the size of the moon with an outstretched finger, I use my pinky because that helps me give a better frame of reference, and you measure it when it's on the horizon and when it's up high in the night sky, you'll find that it is actually the same size in comparison to your finger. It helps if you have just one eye, right? One eye closed. The other way to measure it, though, uh, to test the theory, I think is actually more fun. And so even though uh, people will probably think you're a bit strange, the other way to test this and to debunk the illusion, to, to break the illusion, is to actually look at the moon upside down between your legs, like that. Right? It sounds crazy. And I, and I thought it was absolutely nuts. It was a bonkers theory. The wildest thing is, when I did it, it actually happened. The moon, like, shrunk in my vision. And I almost fell over out of surprise. Right. Seriously, I'm looking forward to hearing about all of you testing that out. <laughs> the point is, our eyes, as reliable as they are the majority of the time, sometimes deceive us. And this is especially so when it comes to spiritual matters. This morning, our passage is all about seeing things as they really are, as they truly are, even when that reality can't actually be seen with our physical eyes. And so if that's the case, we, we ought to ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves, how can the spiritually blind see true spiritual reality? How can the spiritually blind see true spiritual reality? That is the concern of our passage this morning. That is what we will be exploring. And so let's venture in, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes, to open our hearts as we explore it. 
And this morning, uh, even though I'll mostly be working through the text as I usually do, I'm going to highlight three key themes. Uh, So I'll return to certain sections, even though I've already gone over them. And in terms of structure, the first point that we will have isn't just there because it's the most important point, but it's also the one that makes the second two points possible. And so with our Bibles open, with our hearts and, Lord willing, our eyes open, uh, let's begin with our first point. Point number one, ask God for spiritual sight. Ask God for spiritual sight. Uh, Let me start by setting the scene. As we see right from the beginning of this story, Israel and Syria, they are in a state of unrest. They are at war with each other. And our opening verse shows that the king of Syria, he is planning some kind of attack. And that's what his words in verse 8 mean when he says he wants to set up a camp. And we don't actually know which of the kings of Syria and Israel are in view in this passage, but they're probably one of the Ben-Hadads and Jehoram. Uh, The author, obviously, didn't think it was important to tell us about who exactly the kings were in this story, Uh, probably because the focus is Elisha, who is the only one who is named in this passage. So we we see that this is the state of uh, international relations between these two nations. In these first few verses, we discover that Elisha keeps ruining the plans of the king of Syria. Uh, He keeps telling the king of Israel what his next move is going to be when he, when he goes to the next, uh, the next plan of raid or attack that he's going to have, Elisha foils it. And so Elisha here is operating basically like a mole. You know what a mole is? Not, not one of these on your face, but a mole being an insider who sells secrets to the enemy. And Elisha does this a few times, which you see in verse 10. And so you can imagine why this would be very incredibly frustrating for the king of Syria. Every time he tries to do something, it's, it's like the king of Israel knows what his next move is going to be, because he does. And so let's read his reaction from verse 11 to these events. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to him, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And so Elisha's uncanny ability to to ruin the king of Syria's plans makes the king think, there's got to be somebody in, in my army who is leaking these details, these military plans. How else could his enemy know what he's about to do? Well, his servants serve up the truth. No, 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 there are no traitors here, my lord. There's no traitors in your army. Elisha, he has supernatural vision. He he knows the conversations you're even having in your own private chamber. And now at this point, if you're the king and you hear something like this, you've got to do one of two things. You've either got to discard that information as ridiculous and impossible and say, no, there really is a mole. I'm going to torture you all until I find who it is. Or surely... You would have to expect that if this is true, that there is a guy who's able to do, you know, foresee the future, then there's probably nothing you can do to stop him, right? Well, the king of Syria says, I'll take option C. Let's read verse 13. 
And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. Go and see where he is. Find him. Bring him back. Now, Dothan is actually a city to the south of Jezreel. Jezreel there. Dothan there. Samaria. Uh, to the south of Jezreel and to the north of Samaria. And these two cities were actually uh, two places where the king had built his palaces. And the Syrians, who are also known as the Arameans, so you can see here Aram, isn't this such incredible artwork? Um, they would have had to have come, likely from Damascus, all the way down through, past one of the king's you know, palaces into Dothan to try and capture Elisha. And he brought a sizable force, as we see in, gray, in verse 14. He brought a great army. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like the king is blinded by his own hunger for victory and the greatness of his armies. How easy is it to trust in the visible might that we can see in front of us? Even in our world today, we trust in our fighter jets and our nuclear submarines and our allies and the number of our um, machines, our war vehicles. You know, even though the, the logical conclusion, as we said before, would be that surely Elisha has someone on his side who is probably going to outplay the king again, as he's already done more than once or twice, as we read earlier. Instead, the king of Syria completely ignores the obvious signs that he's probably going to lose this battle, and he goes after him. Power can do that to you. And trusting in worldly might will give you a distorted view of the world. It will give you a distorted view of what you can do. And yet, even though it's easy for us to laugh at the king and his stupidity, to read that and kind of go, <laughs> what, what a silly guy. Do we not do the same? Don't we, in pursuit of what we want, in pursuit of things that we want to attain and, and gain victory over, become blinded to the purposes of God and fail to submit to him and to trust him? Have you heard people who don't believe in God uh, say things like, uh, you know, I, I don't need God as a crutch to lean on. I don't need Him. I don't need that. They think to themselves, you know, I, I can do life myself. Who needs God? How easily do you fall prey to the same thinking? You know, it is far too easy to be blinded by our own might. Christian, be on your guard. Well, the uh, army encamps overnight. They are ready to take down one guy and his servant. And when that servant, who might be Gehazi, I'm not sure, wakes up in the morning, he looks out, he sees that the whole city and him and Elisha are completely surrounded. They are outnumbered and they are outgunned. Can you just imagine that sight. 
Imagine being in his shoes. You go to bed in a peaceful city and you wake up and you find maybe hundreds of chariots and horses and soldiers suddenly taking up what was last night just empty space. Understandably, the servant freaks out. He utters that same cry of alas that we uh, saw last week from the disciple, one of the sons of the prophets, when he lost the axe head. That cry of despair, alas! What shall we do, my master? What shall we do? Let's read Elisha's response in verse 16. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, I would, uh, I reckon, pay good money to see his servant's face when he said this to him. Uh, you You can totally picture him hearing that and just going... There's you and me, and, you know, 150-odd horses, chariots, and soldiers. Um, Elisha, I know you're a prophet and all, but maybe you're not so great at math. Maybe counting wasn't one of your strong points. Uh, But there's only two of us, and there's hundreds of them. I have no idea how you can say that there are more with us than with them. But then... Elisha, of course, goes on. O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, you can imagine uh, how his face must have changed after seeing that. Going from thinking, I can't believe this is how I'm going to die, to, wow, okay, I get it, I see. What this servant probably thought were the ramblings of a, of a madman who'd lost his marbles, suddenly they become words of truth that are truer than what his eyes had previously told him. As God answers Elisha's prayer to open his eyes, the servant sees what is really true. Make no mistake, that was no illusion. That was no delusion. That was the reality. Friends, how can we see true spiritual reality? For some of you, this question is self-defeating. There is no true spiritual reality. The only reality is the one that I can see with my actual eyes, actual eyes that I can touch with my hands and hear and taste and smell and process with my brain. For others, the question is self-defeating in another way. What do you mean by true spiritual reality? There's no such thing as true spiritual reality. There's, there's, you know, no one can exactly know what that is. The best we can do is to appreciate the fact that there's more to life than just what we see. There's, there's a kind of spirituality that all people share. And however you find whatever that true spirituality is, then that's great for you. Well, if either of those describes you this morning, let me encourage you to keep exploring those questions and to chat to people in our church about it. 
But you see, this passage, it gives us an answer to that question. How can we see true spirituality? Which is also the answer of the Bible. And that is that blind spiritual eyes are opened by the Spirit of God through the proclamation of God's Word. Let me say that again. Blind spiritual eyes are opened by the Spirit of God through the proclamation of God's Word. Let me give it to you how John Calvin puts it in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Indeed, the Word of God is like the sun, shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed, but with no effect among the blind. Now, all of us are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through His illumination, makes entry for it. Are you hear what he's saying there? All of us are naturally born blind, and it is only by the work of the Spirit that we have, that we receive sight. God had given spiritual sight to Elisha, and he answered Elisha's prayer by opening the servant's eyes to see true spiritual reality. This is the only way it can happen. This is why, as, as Christians, when we, we, we don't speak of how great we are, of being able to figure out that, that Jesus Christ is really who He says He is and that God is true and He owns all truth. We don't say, oh, how great and how smart am I for figuring that out. No, we, we speak and we sing of amazing grace. It is spiritual sight that has been given to us as a gift from God that we do not deserve. And this is why when we seek to share the gospel with others, when we try and, and, and do all we can to, to present the truths of, uh, of the gospel, the truths of Scripture, we want to be prepared to have an answer, as 1 Peter 3.15 encourages us to do for the hope that we have, we want to ensure that we have good arguments, solid uh, ones that we can present well to our friends. In spite of doing all of that, even though we know that is good and we know that is important, more than anything, we pray and we ask that the Lord would open the eyes of our friends and our loved ones and strangers that we share the gospel with, with anyone that we have the opportunity and the privilege to be able to share the gospel with. Because we know at the end of the day, it is God who opens blind eyes. Spiritual sight is not something that you can gain purely by just reading more books or having more conversations. They can be helpful, sure. But ultimately, it is an act of God. Historically, this has been called monogism. Theologians have termed it that. And it's made up of the Greek words mono, meaning one, and ergon, meaning work. So it refers to the fact that it is God's work alone. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, we are often, He often used the metaphor of blindness. But even though we gladly talk about this as a good and a positive thing, which it is, more often than not, Jesus actually uses the idea to condemn those who have refused to see 
that he is the promised Messiah. Jesus calls the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 14, blind guides. And perhaps the most striking use of this image that Jesus uses is in John 9, where Jesus heals a man who is physically born blind. And at the very end of that story, he makes a spiritual point about that physical miracle. After calling that man to believe in Jesus, to say, to recognize that he is the Son of Man, Jesus goes on to say, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Here and in the next couple of verses, as Jesus calls out the Pharisees for their spiritual blindness, He makes it clear that He is the one who opens spiritually blind eyes and that those who think of themselves to be righteous and to have great spiritual insight like the Pharisees did are actually blinded by their sin. Now, I'm sure that raises at least one question for you. If God really is the one who gives spiritual sight, then what on earth can I do about it? Surely, if if that means that it's up to Him, whether I see or not, whether I believe in Jesus or not, I, I don't have a say. Well, there's a lot to say about that. But for now, let me simply say, just as Elisha called upon the Lord to give His servant sight, So we must do the same. The onus of that is still on us. We do that for others, and we do it for ourselves. Peter, when giving his sermon at Pentecost, quoted the prophet Joel and said, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you see, God will not refuse anyone who calls upon Him for salvation. So if you're here this morning and you are yet to believe in Jesus, yet to believe that He is the Son of Man who came to take away our sin, something that the man who was born blind in John 9 came to believe, then the way into that belief The way to receive the gift of spiritual sight is to turn away from your sin, to trust in Jesus. That's what it means to call upon the Lord for salvation. Friends, we are all, every single one of us, born blind. We are all born with a spiritual condition called sin, which makes us unable to see spiritual reality. And it's only when we recognize this and when we cry out to the Son of Man to save us and to open our blind eyes that we will be saved. If you are yet to do that, I would love nothing more than to chat to you about it afterwards. Yet there are many of you here today, like me, who have done that. And I'm sure you, like me, 
despite knowing the goodness and the beauty of seeing a world through unblinded eyes, still struggle to see beyond the illusion that we live in every day. Because we live in the, in the now and not yet, don't we? We live as ones who have been saved by Christ, yet still living in a broken world with broken bodies that are waiting to see God's completed work of salvation reach throughout the entire universe and restore all things. To see Jesus face to face, to see reality as it truly is. We live in the, in the here and the now, in the, in the time in between where we have received the salvation of Christ and yet await its final completion. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing when you rise early in the morning, some perhaps earlier than others, to remind yourself that there is a spiritual reality that is just as real as what your physical eyes can see. In what ways are you in your spiritual life holding up a finger to the moon to remind yourself of its actual size? Don't be mistaken, this is a battle that you need to fight. Each new day, with every breath that we take, there is a battle for our souls. And Satan does not want you to think that that is true. Your own sin doesn't want you to think that that's true either. Our carnal selves would much rather that we think, you know, spiritual truths and these kinds of ideas, they're just the murmurings of a madman and the delusions of a deranged individual. That's because, as Hebrews 11 reminds us, as we sang about just before, we live by faith. We live in anticipation of that heavenly reality that is not yet visible to the naked eye, but one day will be visible to all. And we must battle against our flesh to remind ourselves that there is truth and that there is truth, as the old DC talk song puts it, in a dimension that eyes haven't seen. Do you remind yourself of this daily? Each new morning as you rise, do you remind yourself of that? You see, the alternate alternative is to just get comfortable, to have some kind of vague spirituality, and ultimately let life instead of God be your greatest love. You know, you chuck on the Blind Guides podcast and then let the world rather than the Word determine reality. This is one of the reasons why as Christians we talk often about spiritual disciplines. Reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, not neglecting being together with other brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage you, who will remind you of these truths, who will sing them to you, with you come alongside you. Such disciplines, they are like spiritual laser surgery on your eyes. 
They remove the astigmatism of sin that distorts reality and makes you think that you've only got one life. We need it. We need that. Because like goldfish, we forget what we've seen so quickly. We are the man in James 1 who see our reflection in the mirror and then walk away and forget what we look like. Brothers and sisters, do not give up. Ask that God would keep opening your eyes by His Spirit and through His Word to see spiritual truth and to live in light of that. Because as you do, you'll see that spiritual truth enables you to live fearlessly. And that brings us to our second point. Fear not. For God has maximum might. If you're not taking notes, you might think that sounds a bit strange. But it's because it rhymes with the first point. Fear not, for God has maximum might. Throughout this passage, there is a power struggle going on. The king reckons he's got a serious power. And so he goes after just one guy with a whole army. We see that in verses 14 and 15. And you, you see that, the, the, that emphasizes the point by the fact that that's repeated. I mean, the, the size and the intimidation of this force is enough to make that servant panic. And the word behold there in verse 17, and, uh, oh, sorry, there and in verse 17 and in verses 20, they're there to elevate the tension. You know, we as readers are meant to uh, catch that and to feel the surprise. Behold, whoa, hang on, what? That's the purpose of that word there. And it's only when uh, the Lord opens the eyes of the servant to see the spiritual reality that I'm sure the countenance of his face would have changed. That he would have actually been able to believe Elisha's instruction. Do not be afraid. I mean, 10 seconds earlier, he would have been like, are you crazy? <laughs> of course I'm afraid. And yet now, I imagine he'd be able to understand. Elisha here channels Moses in Exodus 14, 13, uh, when he tells the servant not to fear. And in both these instances, you can see the reason for, for both of those instructions is the same, even though the wording is different. The hope that both of these statements um, have is the same. It is because the Lord is our salvation. The Lord is the one who delivers and who brings salvation. I'm pretty sure uh, all of us know what it's like to be uh, either on the winning or the losing side of a contest that is hopelessly unfair, hopelessly one-sided. When I played third division basketball a few years back, uh, we had a couple of really tall mates who really should have been playing in much higher divisions than third division. Uh, but you know, they were just looking for an opportunity to play some ball and have fun. And I am reasonably certain that everyone in our competition hated us because it was, it was just grossly unfair that we had these two guys on our team who just, they just toyed with the opposition as though they were, you know, under 10s. 
Right? And brothers and sisters, this is one of the spiritual truths that our passage reminds us of this morning. If you are on God's side, then God fights for you and He makes the contest not even a contest. Much like the final quarter of the AFL Grand Final last night. Did anyone watch it? Probably not. No, pretty, yeah, okay. You see, that's the thing. When God is in the battle, when He is the one who is one of the sides, the whole thing just becomes a snooze fest because we know who's going to win. That is why Moses and Elijah can say, Elisha can say, even when they are being hounded by large armies of great kings, that they need not be afraid. Look at verse 17 again. Oh Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. And so he opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The king of Syria might think he's on the winning side because, you know, he's got lots of chariots and horses. But the reality is that God has even more chariots and horses. And not only that, God doesn't just have horsepower, he also has firepower. Right? That image is unmistakable. God's people are never in a position, never in a position where they are on the losing side. And that's a truth that is just as true for the follower of Christ as it, is, as it was for Elisha and his servant. 1 John 4.4 4 reminds us that you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And Romans 8.31 makes it equally as clear. If God is for us, who can be against us? But that raises an interesting question, doesn't it? How? How is God for us? It's all too easy to take these verses and to claim that, you know, whatever current battle that we're facing is a spiritual war and that God is on our side. Maybe it's an actual war, maybe it's a cultural war, maybe it's a political war or a personal war. And the first, it would be very easy for us to to claim that this is God's battle and therefore because we've got God on our side, we're going to win it. Well, the first problem with that is that it doesn't square with the evidence. If that were true, then Christians would be winning everything everywhere, right? But we haven't and we're not. And more importantly, to use these verses to baptize our own battles and to say God fights for us in whatever particular thing that we want to fight and win in would be to abuse the text. So what could this mean for us today? Well, firstly, we need to remember that our purpose as followers of Christ, our purpose is not to win wars and finally prove that God has more military might than every global superpower that has ever existed combined. I mean, even that's true, of course. But that doesn't mean that he deploys his armies to do so. You see, God is not insecure about needing to prove that he has way more and better 
armies than any of you guys do. Jesus said in Matthew 26 that he had 12 legions of angels at his disposal if he wanted to avoid the cross. That's 76,000 angels. And they probably have flaming swords and they're probably indestructible and made of titanium and whatever. Right? And yet Jesus did not call upon a single one. And that's because his purpose wasn't to overthrow Rome. It was to go to the cross. It was to make a way for us to be saved from our sin and to be able to live in the love of Christ. When you go home later today, read the context of Romans 8.31, which I quoted earlier, which is still there. You know, the whole focus of this section in Romans 8 is, is Paul's concern to show us that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God. He finishes that section like this. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our battle is spiritual. It is about remaining in Christ and about trusting in Him and about living our lives for Him. The battle is not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 tells us, but it is against spiritual forces that seek to tear us away from our Lord and Savior. Christian, how are you going in that battle? Are you battered and bruised? Do you feel like you're down and you're about to receive the final blow? Take heart. Do not fear. If God is for us, then who can be against us? I know that at times that that might not feel like it's true. I know how that feels when the enemy keeps harassing you, when you feel like your faith is flickering and smoldering, when you give in to worldly lies and worldly temptations yet again, when you struggle with unbelief. It may not feel like it when you, you know truth about God, you know that things are true about who He is, and yet it, you can't help yourself from seeing the world in a way that is false, like as if you keep coming back to seeing the moon as bigger on the horizon than it really is. It may not feel like it when you know that God is good and that He does have maximum might, but that the reality is, is that you feel like in every area of your life you are losing. Losing the fight against sin, losing the fight against despair, Losing the fight against doubt and drifting into worldliness. Losing the fight against living a victorious Christian life. 
Christian, take heart. Take heart. Ask the Lord to open your eyes. Ask Him to open your eyes to see that you are surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. Ask Him to open your eyes and to see that He that is in you is greater than He that is in the world. Ask Him to help you to live by His grace, knowing that those things are true. And that even in the midst of our frailty, even in the midst of our struggle to believe the truth, that He might, by His Spirit, lift your head and cause you to see that He fights for you. That He has never and will never lose. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, our eyes deceive us. Fight those illusions. Fight those falsities with the sword of the Spirit, with the word of truth, with prayer and petition. Again, as Ephesians 6 instructs us to do. Because you are on the winning side. And that means that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens, even if you die in a war zone, even if you spend the rest of your days battling and battling in a spiritual war zone, it will not be for nothing. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. And we who are in Christ will share in His victory over death. Do not fear. You who are in Christ, do not fear. We know how this is going to end. You need not fear death. And you need not fear anything in this life. Except for God. Because the Lord has maximum might. Elisha didn't fear because he knew that God fought for him. Interestingly, even though we get a glimpse of the Lord's army here, they, they don't actually feature in delivering Elisha and his servant. They don't just suddenly appear and strike down Syria's army. No, instead, as the Syrians attack, Elisha prays, as we read in verse 18, that they will be, perhaps somewhat and intentionally, ironically, struck with blindness. And the Lord answers his prayer. It seems that what's referred to here is not actual blindness, but more of a, a kind of dazed condition. That means that they're unable to know what's going on. Uh, it would be rather difficult, I think, to uh, lead uh, an entire army blind 14 kilometers south to Samaria. 
But Elisha leads them and he tongue-in-cheek says, you're in the wrong place. I'll bring you to the man that you seek. And ironically, he actually does that. (laughs) He does bring them to the man that they seek, just in a different city. And so he takes them to Samaria, roughly, as I said, 14 kilometers south from Dothan. And you can totally picture this scene when Elisha prays and God opens their eyes to find themselves in the heart of enemy territory. Uh, These guys have walked into a trap. And they don't even know how they got there. You can imagine that for these soldiers, what once uh, probably seemed like a mission, you know, that should have been a walk in the park, a whole army versus one guy, you know. Well, their eyes really have been opened now. Perhaps that assumption of how easy it, it would be has now come crashing down to reality. Turns out the king had good reason to be concerned about Elisha. But here's the thing. When God opens your eyes to see that He has maximum might, He also opens your eyes to help you see that His way is one of entrusting all outcomes to Him. Life is no longer about fighting for victories that you want, fighting for things that you desire, but fighting for victories that He wants. And that brings us to our final point. Love your enemies, for God relinquishes your retributive right. Love your enemies for God relinquishes your retributive right. Okay, so I may have gone overboard with the alliteration on this last point. What it is basically saying is that seeing God with true, open spiritual eyes and seeing His will means that you no longer have the right to take revenge. I think every character in this story is spiritually blind except Elisha. And that is also true of the king of Israel. Let's read verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? You can almost hear the excitement and the glee that the king has in wanting to take this army out. Can I kill them? Can I kill them? Please, please tell me I can kill them. I mean, as a king in the middle of a war with Syria, you can understand why he would be excited about this. Elisha has basically just delivered his enemy to him on a platter. But no, Elisha rebukes him and tells him that he can't because they are prisoners of war. Would you strike them down? Instead, Elisha instructs the king to feed the army and to send them back to the king of Syria, which he does in a big way by setting before them a great feast. And as a result, the Syrians no longer raid Israel. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into a discussion here about 
whether showing mercy is an effective military strategy uh, and when the right time is to employ that, etc. Firstly, I'm far too underqualified to do that. And secondly, this passage isn't primarily about concerned about the art of war. And I think it's important for us to guard ourselves against being motivated by what someone else might do in response to our kindness. Do you see what I mean there? If we show kindness to someone just because we want them to leave us alone or because uh, you know, we think it's going to change their behavior or, or that somehow that's actually going to be good for us to, well, we must not be solely motivated by that. Because Jesus himself embodied a principle which is uh, captured in this verse that he would call all of his followers, followers to. Love your enemies, is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Paul picks up on that. Perhaps even thinking about this passage when he says in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, the one whose spiritual eyes have been opened sees that, yes, we have the biggest guy on our team. But because of that, it means we ought to live according to his way. And that means we don't seek our own vengeance because we leave that to the Lord. We don't need to because vengeance is His. And that is what enables us to love those who might be gunning for our harm. It enables us to give them food and drink when they need it, to turn the other cheek when they slap us. How are you going with that? No doubt for Christians, that is something that we all know. It's a commonly quoted thing. What makes this most challenging for you? Do you forget that God really will avenge all injustice? Or does it feel like He's taking too long? Are you tempted to take matters into your own hands and then ask God to bless that quest? Can you picture someone who has wronged you and how God might be calling you to repay evil with kindness or to leave vengeance to His wrath? Brothers and sisters, the only way it is even possible 
to consider loving our enemies. The only way that we could even begin to think that that's something that we might and should do is to remember that God did it first with us. As Romans 5.10 reminds us, The reason forgiveness and a lack of retribution are meant to be hallmarks of the Christian faith is because this is what lies at the center of how God has treated us. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, raging against Him, wanting our own way, Christ died for us. Does that lie at the center of the way that you think about your enemies? Does that lie at the center of the way you consider how you ought to and should treat those who even malign you, who come after you, who do not seek your good? This is the pointy end of the application, isn't it? If we see with spiritual eyes that have been opened and what we see is that God is all-powerful, then that enables us to leave any and all vengeance or justice in His hands and to love those who have wronged us. And this is what baffles the world. This is what made it possible for Louis Zamperini, who was a prisoner of war in World War II in Japan, after he himself became a Christian and had his eyes spiritually opened, was able to return to Sugamo Prison in Japan to express that he had forgiven the guards who had tortured him. That's why something like that ends up having a movie made about it. This is what makes it possible for you to love your enemies. Christian, in what way do you need to love your enemy today? If you're struggling to do that, then let me urge you. Meditate on what Christ has done for you. You were his enemy. And he laid down his life for you. This instruction is not an optional extra of following Christ. This is not something that we're allowed to just take and leave. It is essential. And if you're struggling to do that, then let me encourage you to look to Jesus. As Hebrews 12 reminds us to do. Look to Him. The one who endured the cross, who despised its shame, who knew that it would mean salvation and freedom for all whose eyes would be opened to spiritual truth. He did that for you. Go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, in your wrestle to see spiritual truth, to live 
in light of true spiritual realities, look to Jesus. He alone makes what seems impossible a possibility by His grace. Friends, ask God for spiritual sight. Fear not, for God has maximum might. And love your enemies, for God relinquishes your retributive right. Brothers and sisters, seeing the world through unblinded eyes is going to look strange to others. A bit like looking at the moon on the horizon between your legs. People might think you're crazy, like the servant probably thought Elisha was. After all, to to trust in a God that you cannot see and to trust that He is all-powerful and that as a result you may be able to love your enemies, all of that is extremely counterintuitive and runs against the grain of our sinful nature. But be assured this morning that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Will you ask God to open your eyes and to help you live in light of true spiritual reality? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and that you would continue to do so, to remind us of what is true, of what is spiritually true, of what really is true. We ask that as a result, God, we would put our trust in you and follow you even in difficult instructions to love our enemies. Father, may our faith grow and increase such that we can have confidence in your love for us, have confidence in the fact that you will deal with all justice and all injustice. so that we may follow and pursue you for the rest of our days. May we put on the armor of God. And continue to wage war against our flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.